All right. Well, welcome back to a study in the book of Romans. Uh, we are in chapter four of the book of Romans, and this morning we are in lesson nine, which I've simply called Justification Has Always Been by Grace Through Faith. We're looking at Romans chapter four, verses one to three this morning. I want to tell you a little story. The story goes something like this. You have a rich uncle. That's the story. So in this rich uncle story, your family loves your rich uncle. Your rich uncle is a self-made man, you've been told about a thousand times. He owns the biggest business. He has more money than anybody else. And everybody knows it. And everyone in the family has decided that he's the goal. If you could just be as rich, just as famous, and just as hardworking as your uncle, you too could be a self-made person. And so your entire family has now made that their goal. So everyone in your family is working towards that. They're going to the best schools, they're working hard, they're doing everything they can in a perfectionistic way to try to match the standard of your amazing uncle. But after a while you and others in the family realize you have done everything you can, but you're not even close to where your uncle is. You're you're not making any ground at all. It doesn't seem possible to get there. And so one day, you go to meet with your uncle and ask him a question. Say, uncle, look, I've tried everything I can. I just can't get there. You're the richest. You're the best. You've done all this amazing stuff. You own all these companies. What do I have to do to get where you are? And he tells you, Find a rich uncle. (laughs) He said, uh, all the money I have was actually given to me by my rich uncle. And this business was given to me by my rich uncle. And all the stuff that you see has all been given to me. That doctorate was given to me by that university. (laughs) You're like, you didn't earn any of this stuff? Nope. What would that do to your paradigm, right? The fun. What would that do to your family's paradigm? to recognize that he wasn't a self-made man. He'd actually received everything as a gift. That's the story we have in in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul turns now to Abraham, the rich uncle, to tell the story. In chapter 3, he's told us, hey, you're saved by grace through faith. That's the way it rolls. It's only in Christ. You can't do this under the law. You can't work your way to heaven. We've looked at all of that. But now he's going to demonstrate from the Old Testament that that's the way it's always been. That the rich uncles we look at in the Old Testament of Abraham and David and those guys, they didn't earn it either. And for the Jewish part of the audience in in Rome, Paul is making clear in verses 1 to 3 that justification has always been by grace, always been through faith, and that it's always been credited as righteousness and never earned. Does that make sense? So Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, are just the beginning of that entire chapter of chapter 4, which does this. Paul's going to tell us about Abraham and David, and then go back to Abraham at the end of the chapter to tell us, this is how it worked in the Old Testament. And it's always been the same. You were saved exactly the same way that Abraham was. And you were saved exactly the same way that David was. There's no difference in the way God does stuff. So let's look at our rich uncle. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 of Romans chapter 4. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What has Abraham found about salvation? Was it different than what Paul just said in Romans 3? Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. And then my favorite verse in the book of Romans, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks, he joins Abraham of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And David says, and why these are in bold, or why these are in large print, are their quotes from the Old Testament. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. What we have in those first eight verses then is the plus and minus of imputation, and that is Abraham, it says, the righteousness of God was credited to his account. Abraham's positive side. David comes on the other side of the ledger and says, blessed is the person whose debts, sins, are wiped out. You see the plus and minus of imputation here. Abraham is blessed, why? Because God took righteousness and put it on his account, credit. David is just talking about the other side of imputation. That blessed is the man who gets his sins wiped out and zeroed. So you have zero debt to God and infinite righteousness in your credit. And then in between those verses, is verses 4 and 5 telling us, hey, that works for you too. God will do that for you. Guys, this is a good day. So here's what I've written in the middle of the page. Um, maybe the greatest Christian text ever written since the Apostles. In Romans 4, we have the experience and example of Abraham in relation to faith, imputation, justification, and salvation. Paul is continuing his argument on justification by faith and now turns to evidence from the Old Testament to prove that faith and not works has always been the instrument through which justification has come. Paul cites Genesis 15 and Psalm 32 in defense of his case and uses both Abraham and David as examples of those justified by faith. These two examples serve to further prove Paul's assertion in Romans 3 that there is no basis of boasting because salvation is by grace through faith and not by works. You know, it's difficult to teach this passage in one sense because it's so clear. There's no being clever about teaching this. It is so clear that there are three things that are spoken of, and this is the outline that I have given for the first eight verses. Verses 1 to 3, Abraham was justified by grace through faith before the time of the law. Verses 4 and 5, 
we are justified by grace through faith after the law. And then he goes back and shows David. David was justified by grace through faith under the law. Well, there you have it. <clears throat> so the picture at the bottom of the page, excuse me, is meant to bring that out. And simply this, that from creation to 1445 B.C., about 2,500 years, <coughs> they pick Abraham, Paul picks Abraham only as the one character he's going to mention, and it is that he is saved by grace through faith. That 2,500-year period, before the time of the law, had two basic periods of time. Pre-flood, right? get Adam and the boys all the way down to Noah. And then from the flood to the law, everybody wants me to put a year on the creation, somewhere in 3900, according to just chronology, just chronology. So, and then you've got in this whole bucket, you've got Abraham, and then to Moses. What Paul's going to do, and we're going to do this on the next page in a minute, Paul's going to share with us a number of things that are important about Abraham in order to get us to see the big picture, which is he's representative of that period after the flood, people were saved by grace through faith. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about how were people saved here? Do we have any scriptural evidence that they were saved by grace through faith? Well, one of the characters, just the highlight, is Noah. Noah found favor, Right? In the eyes of the Lord. The very word that Paul's going to use in verse 4 and 5, that favor is different than working. A favor is different than a wage. And so if you get favor from God, it's grace. And so Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn it. He wasn't the one righteous man on earth because he was good. He was the one justified man on earth because of favor. And then back back to the chart, simply this. <clears throat> Three sons what? He said no, he was the one sons. man, but there was four of four of them. Right. Right. I'm not representative, but yeah, yeah. The one the one guy. Is he the one dude that, that he picked because he's righteous? But that's right. Whether Shemham and Japheth are actually regenerate is a question. So it's a fair question. They were saved from the physical flood, just like the men and women who came out of Israel out of Egypt were saved physically, but many of them were pagans. So there's no guarantee in, right, that, that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were actually believers. Um, and so. But we know that Noah was. We know that Noah. Good. Um, so David uh, is representative then of under the law, right? 1,500 years of the law. 1,500 years. <clears throat> And yet, we're going to go through, Lord willing, some pictures of people under the law, willing David. And then the nearly 2,000 years of the time since the law. What's going to be fun, too, in the next couple of weeks is looking at some, a few of the characters uh, since, since the time of Christ who are representative of people saved by grace through faith, right, in church history. We'll do a little church history together uh, next week. All right, and then finally, after the law, you and I, um, and that justification has always been by grace <clears throat> through faith.
Okay, you're here. Let's get real now. Okay. Let's get in the text. Abraham was justified by grace through faith before the law. Again, verses 1 to 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Good question. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? That's Paul's concern. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I've named 11 reasons why I think Abraham's the guy that we need to talk about. It's going to take hours to describe. (laughs) Number one, his conversion is recorded in the book of Genesis. So Paul is making the point that justification by grace through faith is from the beginning. There's your starting point. Abraham's a key because he's in the book of Genesis. Genesis being the first book, Paul's making the point that from the largely beginning, looking back 2,000 years at that point, from the time that Paul wrote, he's saying Abraham, in that book, represents that this was happening in the book of Genesis. Number two, the author of Genesis is Moses. So you get two birds with one stone if you mention Abraham. Because Moses knew about justification by grace through faith. How do we know that? He wrote about it. Moses wrote Genesis and recorded the reality that Abraham was saved by grace through faith. And so the author is acknowledging that as the story and would also then by implication. Why doesn't Paul start with Moses? Because Abraham, as we're going to say, is the most exalted figure in Judaism. Above Moses, uh, he's, Abraham's the guy. But Moses is pretty close. And then David. Or to some, David and Moses, depending on your look. But those are the three dudes. Daniel and Joseph and all those other key players. Man, they're, they're, they're on the hockey team, but they're not, they're not major players. Okay. So number three. He was justified through faith before the law, as we've already said. So three things. He's in the book of Genesis, so it's from the beginning. Number two, the author of Genesis is the other key player in the Old Testament, and he acknowledges that's the way people were saved. And then number three, he was justified before the law, which blows the mind on the rich uncle story. Because within Judaism, at the time of Paul, the story still went that Abraham was saved by obeying laws. And some had even confounded or configured the whole thing of the law. I just did that with my word. Whatever word I wanted, it didn't get out there. Uh, Conflated, thank you. Uh, They conflated the law and Abraham's story to make it sound like he had actually obeyed the law. And then number four, he was a Jewish hero. I used this quote a couple weeks ago, but this was what Judaism said about Abraham. Abraham sits beside the gates of hell and does not permit any wicked Israelite to go through. Any wicked Israelite, Abraham, will keep out of hell. That's a good deal. (laughs) When Justin Martyr was arguing with the Jews in the Dialogue of Trypho, it's a book from the first century, second century, uh, the Jews said this, They who are a seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving, And even if they be Las Vegas Raider fans (laughs) and disobedient towards God, they still share in the eternal kingdom. Okay, 
again, if you were here last week, just reminding you, that's what it's like growing up Roman Catholic. If you're Roman Catholic, unless you do a, you know, a mortal sin, you pretty much know you're going to get there eventually. And that's how Judaism viewed Abraham, his role. They, it was believed by Jews uh, to have been justified by his own works of righteousness. But then Jesus told the story, of course, in Luke 16, that debunks the idea that Abraham can get you in. And I think it's worth, as we've talked about it, but we haven't actually read this text together. And starting in Luke 16, 22. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he, the rich man, raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. Now, I want to I say this. Um, there are some who believe that this is a parable. And that is a story with a moral point, but that the facts of it are not historical. They, they, they didn't actually take place, but it, because Jesus told parables. He told many parables in which they're not true stories, they're, they're Aesop's fables, but what they do is they make a moral point that is true. Okay? But on this one, I disagree with those who think it's a parable uh, for three reasons really quickly. Number one, he mentions people by name. Uh, he doesn't do that in the other parables. Uh, he mentions Abraham. He mentions Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus who rose from the dead, but another one, right? So number one, he names uh, that. Number two, he puts words in their mouth. He's saying real historical figures said these things. I just don't see Jesus saying, Abraham said this, and then later saying, I was just saying that as a story. Okay. And thirdly, this is a story about heaven and hell. The implications of this is major doctrine issue. And so I don't think this is a parable just to tell a moral story that says you, you should believe in God. And so in that, going back to the text, verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. <clears throat> But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and, and you, a great chasm has been set so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people cross from there to us. So much for purgatory and so much for Abraham giving you a ticket. He's not Willy Wonka doesn't have a golden ticket. Abraham got there the same way you're going to get there. Now, I understand that there is no longer there. We'll talk about that. But the same way we're going to get there is the way Abraham got there. In the afterlife, in the place of bliss, he got there by grace, through faith. He has no extra merit. He's not getting anybody in. He's the greatest figure of the entire Old Testament. And he got there exactly the way we do. And verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4 tell us one other thing. You're not qualified to get there unless you meet one qualification. You have to be ungodly. God does not justify godly people. You have to admit to yourself and to God, I am ungodly. I am unsavable except by you. That's what keeps most people out of heaven. 
is the belief that they are somehow good or godly. Or they're doing some part of the merit, right? Abraham in this passage and why the Jews would have been, what about Abraham in reading Romans 4 is not simply, oh, Abraham had faith. They believed that. But he had faith in what? That God would save him from being ungodly. Because verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4 tell us that God justifies the ungodly who don't work. You have to be ungodly. You mean I have to be as ungodly as possible? <laughs> no. Oh, then you're an Oakland Raider fan. Okay? <laughs> if there are any Oakland Raider fans in the room, we shall pray for you. Oh, that's right, Las Vegas. That's right, they're out of Oakland, aren't they? Okay. Verse 26 again. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go over there and hear to you will be able, will not be able nor will any people cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. The sufficiency of scripture. Now, most of you know what I'm going to write on the board, so go along as if you didn't know this. Okay? As you probably know, but perhaps have not thought about in a while where that was at the time uh, that Jesus is telling that story was before his crucifixion and resurrection that the righteous dead in the Old Testament went to Abraham's bosom, the waiting place. Obviously Moses and Abraham had already talked. Think about it. Abraham lived and died almost 500 years before Moses lived and died. And yet Abraham's repping on Moses. Right? Uh, they got the book. I didn't have a book. Yeah. Abraham had no scripture. No scripture was written until Moses. For 2,500 years of, of earth, there were no scriptures. There was no sola scriptura. There was no, you must believe the Bible to be saved. There was no scripture. There was God speaking. There was God speaking through men. But the point of it is, every righteous dead person in the Old Testament went to Abraham's bosom, and the unrighteous dead, the unbelievers, went to a place called Hades, a place of waiting for final judgment at the great white throne judgment at the end. Then, scripture tells us Hades will be cast into Gehenna, or hell. Hell, the final place of that, is after the final judgment. And no one gets out of, there's no, oh, I go to the courtroom and I get free and go to heaven, right? Okay, this is, this is already there. So that is what's taking place, and Abraham is speaking to him across the divide, and apparently in the afterlife before the crucifixion, they could see each other. You would know that you missed it. You know you were waiting for final sentencing. And Abraham made it really clear, you can never come over here, and no one here is ever going to be lost and go over there. Talk about eternal security, it's right there. It's the afterlife, and a real person who's the greatest person in the Old Testament, as we look at, 
is there and recognizes this is an eternal gap and recognizes too the word of God is the final authority and that that is the only hope is to believe what God said sorry by faith <clears throat> Daniel you're that guy <laughs> alright so that's what's going on in terms of the eschaton that's what is happening in the afterlife and just to refresh your mind so in relationship to Abraham why is he important? for all those reasons um, he's in the text and he's in a story that Jesus tells in which Jesus puts him in the afterlife in the very middle of that which would have confounded the Jews of the time who saw him as the sugar daddy of heaven and that he would certainly get every Jew into his bosom and never allow them to be here mm. but the story contains a rich Jew speaking to Abraham and this rich Jew is the rich uncle himself but he's not going to heaven so important piece so point four yeah Greg um, so I'll drink water would you say it's different after the resurrection uh, of course to be That's right. the body to be the present with the Lord yeah absolutely yep I would say that <laughs> yeah. that's right that's right after the resurrection uh, this was cleared out. Uh, Jesus held captivity captive. When he told the, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, he wasn't talking about here. He was talking about the way we kind of think of heaven, if you will. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was emptying this bad boy out. That's the idea that he took captivity captive. He emptied the place. He preached in hell is the words some people would use the Apostles' Creed, which is not accurate. Uh, he descended into the lower places. Is and that at his resurrection, he held captivity captive. He took them out. This place is still there. But there's nobody to see. Nobody's home. And then they're waiting. They're waiting for... <laughs> Don't move. <laughs> what do you think I should do, Daniel? Just keep talking and doing stuff. Those people who want to escape this class can still go to heaven. All right, this is the importance of this, the afterlife picture that Jesus gives us with Abraham in it is to help us understand the importance of Abraham and the importance of the reality of the afterlife. Okay. All right. Point five on page two. He had resurrection faith, and he looked forward to the Redeemer. When I say that Abraham got to heaven the same way as you did, or is going to, he's in heaven, we're not, the same way we're going to, um, he had a similar kind of faith. The question is how much content he shared, whether he had the same content that we have. But he had the same kind of faith in the object of that. And that's God's objective word that said this is true and he believed it. But let, let me kind of hone in on that in these two verses here, or three verses. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, this is after his conversion. We're going to talk about that. He offered up Isaac. And the one who had received the promises was offering up his only son. It was he to whom it was said, through Isaac your descendants shall be named. 
He, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now look, we could do two hours on this. There's a lot embedded in that passage. Um, It's my understanding after years of looking at the question of, did Abraham believe in the coming Messiah or did he just believe God? We're going to look at Genesis 15 when he becomes converted. Does he just believe in general that he's going to have children, or is he believing something more than that? After years of looking myself, I could be wrong, good and godly people disagree, um, but I have come to the belief that Old Testament characters are saved by believing in the coming Messiah. That it's pictured in small form, and then progressive revelation gives more content to it. They didn't know it's Jesus, they don't know he's going to be born at this point, until later the prophets tell him where he's going to be born. But in every progressively revealed aspect of the Old Testament, they are believing in the coming Messiah figure. Even all the way back to Genesis 3, the Proto-Evangelion, the, the, the gospel beforehand, in which is told the crushing of Satan's head and that the one who's bitten on the heel will, will save them. All of those pictures in the Old Testament. And next week, we're going to look at Old Testament salvation a little more clearly. But I believe that Abraham looked and saw in type what a resurrection would look like. It says, in type, he received back Isaac, and it's not, it's not just for our benefit that he did so. I'm going to go a little farther in a minute and try to demonstrate that, but don't make that your main point today. My point is he looked forward to a Messiah. Number six, he was justified before he was circumcised. Why is that important to us? Because we are justified before we are baptized. And in picture, Paul is bringing forth the New Testament truth and also showing the Jews that circumcision never saved anybody, right? So he gets off of the idea good works won't help you, nor any of the Old Testament rites. You can follow them all. You can get Bot Mitzford. You can get Bob Mitzford. You can get Hunky Dunky Mitzford. <laughs> Man, I'm mixing my words up. I ought to get some sleep. I almost said the word Mitford. Jan Karen cannot help me today. I love Jan Karen's books. Do you guys like Jan Karen's books? Yes. I love the Mitford stuff. It's awesome. Um, anyway, sorry. A little random. So number six, he was justified before he was circumcised. Super important to us because so many Christians think they have to be baptized to be saved. He was the father of all who believe, according to the New Testament. And that's helpful to us because of number eight. He was both a Gentile and a Jew. <laughs> In two different categories, if you will. And I'll explain that. He was the father of the Jewish nation. What helps is, why does Paul use him as an illustration? All the things we're saying, but that Abraham himself was not in the Judaism. He wasn't a Jew. Only until there's Judah do you have the Jewish nation. But he's the progenitor of that. But he himself will be regarded as a Gentile, right? This helps us. Abraham's faith was our faith. And so Paul's using him as the bridge. He's not a Jew, but he's the father of Jews. And so for both ways, it helps in Paul's argument that Jews and Gentiles alike are saved the same exact way. And then number nine, it's an argument of the greater to the lesser, right? If Abraham needed to be justified through faith, and he's the greatest, how much more you and I? (laughs) So no Jew should have said, Well, yeah, it worked for him, but I'm sure I could work my way there. 
they should have said, well, if the greatest person who ever lived in the Old Testament needed it, I certainly need it more. And that's the Apostle Paul's argument on himself. He said, I am the chief of sinners. And number 10, he was given the covenant, right? He's given the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to talk about that. And number 11, the way Abraham is justified is through a blood covenant, just like the new covenant. And we know that. We're going to talk about it in a minute. All right, let me drink some water, get myself revved up, because we're about to have fun now. All right, back to verses 1 to 3. Abraham, page 3, was justified by grace through faith before the law continued. How was Abraham justified then? Again, guys, this is the simplest outline I think I have in the entire book of Romans. It's so clear in the text. You could have done this by yourself, blindfolded at night, asleep. Because there's really only three points. He saved by grace through faith, and then on the next page... Righteousness was imputed to him. That's the three points. That's what the text says. That's what we're going to say. But let's talk about it. Okay. To the top of page three. He was saved by grace. How do we know that? Because the text tells us that he had nothing to boast about before God. What he got was a gift. There's no boasting in gift receiving. Right? I mean, at Christmas, (laughs) when you get your gifts, if you do Christmas, all right, you open your gift. You shouldn't strut around the living room going, my parents love me more than you. My parents love me more than you. Right? Or you shouldn't also say, I totally earned this this year. All right? Totally earned this. Can't believe that. And then there's those who are not happy because they're like, they expected more because they were worthy of more. Right? And so a free gift implies you have nothing to boast about. You didn't do anything. Okay. The point of it is in this passage in verses 1 to 3, the apostles already told us if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Because it's a gift. Secondly, it was through faith. He believed. The Abrahamic covenant was promised by God apart from works. Remember what faith is? Trusting or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word, believe what he has said, and saving faith includes knowledge, assent, and trust. That means you must know what the gospel is, You must assent to the need that you have. I am a sinner. I am ungodly. I cannot save myself. I want that. And then trust is to place yourself completely in the work of Christ as your your final hope. I trust in that and that alone to save me. So when we talk about faith, we're going to have to talk about one major thing. Does your faith save you? And the answer is, No. Christ saves us. By his grace, through the imputed merit he places on our account. Then is my faith doing anything? It's an open hand of receiving. But faith is not meritorious. God does not credit our faith as righteousness in the sense of when we buy credits, we use that word now, I bought six credits so I can go back and use them any time. Or I purchase credits. Don't get those mixed up. Uh, We are credited. It's as if we had done the righteousness. But our faith does not add merit to that. It doesn't purchase anything. Our faith is not only a gift itself. But our faith is simply trusting 
that when the thing is handed to you, that's it. it it's no merit behind our faith. It's the finished work of Christ that saves us. And so, let's get into that. Let's dive into Genesis 15. Pastor Gabe read it last week, and what I was really happy about when he's reading through Genesis is all those chapters with all those hard names. (laughs) I mentioned that one Sunday. And he gets all the hard ones. When I get up to read, it's always like the social life of the beaver. You know, it's really easy subject, John 3.16 kind of <laughs> passages. And when he gets up, it's always, Meninibacheth met Magugabop, and, you know. And I'm always like, that's why you went to seminary. <laughs> yeah, the Lord has a way of doing that. So you're going to know that when we get to verse 19 at the bottom, I'm just going to say mosquito bite. <laughs> All right? All right? I'm just not even bothering, Okay. So we need to read Genesis 15 back to Abraham was justified in this passage. We know that, but we're going to go ahead and read through. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram also said, Since you've given me no son, one who's been born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. I don't know what place on earth you've been where there's not much light pollution. Some people, I know, uh, Joel. Joel, you're here, right? Joel, you must have been to a number of places, right? <coughs> Joel is an astrophotographer. Astral? Astro? Astro. Yeah, astral is weird. Uh, Carla and I went a couple summers ago to a place that's supposedly light-polluted-free kind of place out in the desert in California that people go to. But imagine a, uh, a night in the ancient world, no light pollution, and you can absolutely be, see stars all over the place. That night that you've seen in your life where you're like, what? And Abraham would have seen it, whatever was out there, as clearly as possible. And God said, go ahead and count them. (laughs) Where was I? I? Seven? (laughs) No, that's right. And God's promise to him is, Abraham, I've already promised to you three things, and we're going to look at that in Genesis 12. You get a land, a seed, through you, that's going to come through the Davidic line, we're going to find out later, and be the Messiah. A land, a seed, and a blessing. That that seed will be a blessing to all nations, the new covenant. And so in that, he's like, hey, I'm not going to get any children, and this is the point. And he took him outside, and he said, now look up there and count if you can. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, or Abram, believed in the Lord, and he credited it it to him as righteousness. If we only had this passage, we have two things. This is where Abraham gets justified. It's clear. He believed what God said, and God justified him, declared him to be righteous. Not because Abraham had been good. Chapters before that, he'd already tried to sell his wife. My boy Abram. Abram, I got a big plan for you. You're the man. Cool. Egypt. 
right? Here's my wife, lied. I mean, my, my, my sister. Uh, yeah, uh, just don't let him kill me. Okay, this is the high point. This is, this is the swimmer to England that we talked about. But he believes God because God justifies unrighteous people. And he believed God. Does he believe only that he's going to have children? Um, I think there's other scriptures, and I'm going to try to show them to you a little bit later and in next week, that would indicate to me that the implied idea is that the child he's thinking about is this coming one. And through his line, that one will come, because applied later, when he takes Isaac up there as the applied one, he's sure that even if he kills him, he's going to rise from the dead. So let me continue then, verse, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he said, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now some people have read lack of faith there. And he just believed God for this outrageous opportunity thing. And he believed him and God credited it to him. And now he's saying, how am I going to know I'm going to get the land you're talking about? I don't think it's saying, I don't believe you're going to give me the land. I think, this is my basic interpretation, he just became a Christian. Like he hasn't been discipled by the navigators. Okay? He never met crew. Okay? IVP has not helped him. Nope, nobody's discipling this guy. And he turns from, I believe you. That's going to happen. Then God adds to the package, you're going to get all this land you can see. I think it's possible that Abraham would have said at that point, do I have to do something to get that? Like, I believed you. You said this is going to happen. I, I just wonder if Abraham's then saying, okay, you're going to have the land. Abraham might have thought, do I do something to activate that? Mm-hmm. That's my interpretation of what it is. And verse 8, but he said, Lord God, how bad I may know I will possess it. And so the Lord said in verse 9, he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Oh, yeah, Abraham's got them in his cart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I just counted those out. There's, okay. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. We all know, or should know, and Pastor Gabe mentioned it a couple weeks ago, uh, namely that this is an ancient Near Eastern uh, practice of covenant making in which if you split animals and make a walkway and you both walk between it, as Pastor Gabe mentioned last week, you are going arm in arm, typically. You walk through it to say, if I break my end of the covenant, do to me what we did to these animals. Mm. It's a blood covenant. My friends, this blood covenant is the picture that the new covenant is. Only God made the covenant. We did nothing. Christ made the new covenant and offered it to us. God made the new covenant, or the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, and he did all the covenant making. He just says, believe me. So, but he did not cut the birds. And birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. So Abram's going to be part of it. Nope, verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Well, he's out of the game. I can't make it to the ceremony. Exactly. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. 
Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven. I'm glad the translation doesn't say smoking pot. When I, when I was a youth pastor and used this, the kids would all be like, you know. Like, okay, no, they weren't smoking pot. A smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared, which passed through, symbolically, God's symbols passed through these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and, then the, and also the land of the mosquito bites. <laughs> That's verse 19. It's, it's, it's kind of a Hebrew translation of all that. The parasites is even better. Dude, I've been using mosquito bites. The parasites is so much more contextual. So there is the bigger picture. We know this story, but just let it hit home. The importance of why Abraham's story is so important to ours. He was saved by grace through believing God's word, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's not because he was a good guy. It's because he has a good God. And at the bottom of the page three, then I just mentioned John chapter eight as a thought about what was it that Abraham really believed. And this is what Jesus said about Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. What does that mean? Well, it can mean a lot of stuff. I'm going to try to tie that together next week, how Old Testament saints saved as part of the package in that. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. But I do want to hone in that, that underlying point. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad. Could have happened several different places. It could have been he saw it in picture. You know, Abraham met the pre-incarnate Christ as the angel of the Lord. Okay, we're going to get into that. Every appearance of the angel of the Lord, in my estimation, is Jesus pre-incarnate. Every single time. Abraham had met him. You realize that? He'd met the second person of the Trinity long before there was Calvary. And so Abraham had had an encounter with the angel of the Lord who was God in pre-incarnate form. Maybe that's what Paul's, uh, that's what the author's talking about, John. That's what Jesus might be talking about. He, he looked to my day and he was pretty excited about when he saw me. That could be it. Or it could be the picture of Isaac and he took him back as a type. Maybe there's more Abraham knows than we imagine he knew. But he looked forward to my day prophetically. And he saw it. That's the point. Because we're told that Abraham died without getting the promises. Right? He, in the book of Hebrews. He died without receiving the land, the fulfillment of the seed. It was before Christ. All of those things. And yet Jesus said, but Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. We have to talk about that. It's not full knowledge. The Old Testament saints did not have the knowledge of the New Testament. But they had in seed form, in my estimation, the promise of the Messiah. And so. All right, page four. He was saved by grace through faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Righteousness was imputed to him. It was credited to his account. Let me remind you of the word imputation. I could have gone smaller font. I think it's like six or seven font. What do you think? Maybe seven font? Ellie font? Is it Ellie font? Yeah, that's it. To think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us and it therefore belongs to us. And in justification, he thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and so relates to us on this basis. That's the beauty of imputation. Before I read the Westminster Confession of Faith and drive some of you out of your mind, I do want to note this little, just, this little basic diagram here. I just remind you that this, when we talk about imputation, we are talking about God accounting in a legal way, in an accounting sense, something belonging to someone as if it was theirs. And there are three great imputations in the Bible. First, Adam's sin to all men, right? All sinned in Adam. Romans 5, chapter 5, Paul's going to go in that in depth, right? He's going to say, everyone in Adam sinned when Adam sinned. Like, what? Because God accounts with representative form of government. That's how he does it. Adam represented all people. Second one is the sin of the elect to Christ. Some of you are going to be like, I thought he died for everyone. I'm not even going to try to prove any of that until we get further in because I want the scriptures to speak. And so whether you believe he died for all sins of all people for all time or he died only for the sins of the elect, in either way, their belief, number three, Christ's righteousness is accounted to them eventually when they believe. But the question is, was the sin of Christ accounted, I'm sorry, the sins of all people accounted to Christ at the cross? Were they all imputed to Christ? The difficulty we're going to have as good and godly Christians is this. If Jesus propitiated the wrath of God on every sin of every person of all time, then why is God still angry? Why, why, is, there, why is there a hell? If God is no longer angry with anyone's sin, Christ said it is finished. Um, he completed the work of atonement. He does not go back and re-atone. And so that is the question of, if Jesus died for all the sins of all people for all time, why are there some people in hell? And of course we would say, well, they, they don't believe. And then the question is, is unbelief a sin? You say, yeah. Then he died for that sin. So why is anybody in hell? Oh, there's a sin he didn't die for. It's unbelief. Then don't say that he died for all the sins of all people for all time. He died for some of the sins of all people for all time. But there's one he did not die for. That's complicated because scripture doesn't say that. So those are the complexities with that. If Christ died and he satisfied God's wrath and he covered our sin and he propitiated for it, then they are truly, they are truly taken care of. We're not justified until we believe, but the account is already paid. And if Christ has already made an account and paid for everyone's sin and also wiped away their debt, then what is there a hell for? And so, I'm not going to go there, Steve. It's not a debate yet. Yeah. I'm seeding a conversation. And I know that I get to seed it my direction here. Uh, but it is a, it's, it's a fair seed 
to think through. And what you need to do is think through biblically, not just logically. How does the death of Jesus affect or relate to the sins of all people for all time? What did he do at Calvary? Did he accomplish it or did he make it possible? And if you say it's only possible, then what did he really do? Because later does he go back and make it? Like, no, now I'm paying the wrath. There's a lot of complexities in all of that, and we have to think through. The question is, what does Scripture say? And that's something we will look at in the book of Romans later on when it talks about the atonement in a little more deep way. All right. Having seated that, we're in page four then, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Remember, you have to quote Spurgeon, MacArthur, or the Westminster Confession to keep your job here. So I'm just doing what I can to keep working. Okay? I don't want to get fired, so uh, I was told by the other elders, if you don't quote Westminster this week, you've got to go Spurgeon. So, uh, it's an or. All right. Page four. The Westminster Confession of Faith on Justification. So we've talked about justification, imputation, faith, and all that. They give us six points on this that I think are helpful. Number one, those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. Look, Elizabethan language. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but by Christ's sake alone nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them. Your faith did not save you as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith. Which faith? They have not of themselves. It's a gift of God. What do you have that was not given to you, the apostle says? Even your faith is a gift so that your faith could not possibly be meritorious. Number two, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it's not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces. It is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Three, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus justified and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only a free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Number four, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did, in the fullness of time, die for their sins and rise for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. You're not justified until you believe. God doth continue to forgive their sins, forgive the sins of those that are justified. So once you're a Christian, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, renew their faith and repentance. Again, you're not getting resaved. You're restoring relationship. And the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all respects, one and the same with the justification of believers. 
under the New Testament. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, is our understanding. By faith, by grace, through faith in the Old Testament, the question is how much did they understand of the content, but they believed God in his word and were saved. I hope you're encouraged if you're a Christian here today. So let me remind you one more thing here before I go on pastorally. Don't be the person who's the professing Christian who believes that God did all that stuff again so that he made you good enough so that you can work out the rest. Okay? That's Catholicism, but it's also the subtle lie that people within our evangelical churches, I know so because I've talked to some in the last four or five weeks in our church who subtly, that seems to be where their head has been. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's good. He died on the cross. He'll do all that stuff. But somewhere in there is the, now that I know that I have to earn something. I don't want to get in graphic detail because the story would rob the glory of the gospel. So I need to do a, a more milder version, but it would be this. If it were that in order to save a commuter train, and a commuter train was plunging along, and there was a chasm, and the bridge was out, those kind of illustrations, and the, conduct, the, the person who's on the side moving the train thing and can make the bridge go down or bridge stay up, and the bridge is up and it's stuck. I've heard this illustration because it's actually a true story, but I don't want to make it graphic, but in the case that the engineer's son fell into the gears prior to the train coming across the bridge, and the decision was made, does he lower the bridge? There's a zillion people on the train. Or does he save his son? I hate the illustration, and I've used it. I looked it up. It's, it's, it's a true story of a dilemma that a man had. But the reality is, that is in picture, I believe, a good picture for us to know what God the Father and God the Son's eternal perfect relationship, that he placed him in the gears, if you will, to save the commuter train of people. The decision to spare not your son, but offer him up. What would you do in that case? Let me just go through the illustration to make the point. If the father made the horrendous, almost impossible, ridiculous decision to lower the bridge, crush his son in the gears, and allow the train to go forward, all those people would be oblivious to the cost. They'd have no idea. They'd just be partying, they'd be looking out the window. They'd have no idea what was going on. And the train would go through and everybody would go home. But if the news reported to them what had happened, and certain people on the train realized they were saved by the death of this man's son, what if one of the people came to that man's house and offered him $5? I just want to give you a gift. Thank you so much for saving us. Here's $5. That would be ridiculous. And that's what we do when we try to work our way to heaven when God killed his son for us. When we try to offer him $3, and God's like, I don't need that. That doesn't make up for it. You cannot make up for it. If you're a professing Christian and you still think you're paying part of the way, Throw yourself recklessly on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Father punished his son so that we could be free. Hallelujah. Let's pray.